welcome to the first of two episodes that we're going to do on the Pilgrimage of Grace. So we've moved on from the medieval stuff we've been looking at as part of this theme study, and now we've moved into the early modern period. What I will say is that I'm going to spend a bit of time comparing the Pilgrimage of Grace to the Peasants' Revolt, so make sure that you're familiar with the events of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 and what's going on there, because it does, I think, provide a very useful mirror to the Pilgrimage of Grace. So, what caused the Pilgrimage of Grace? Well, you've got to remember that we're into a, an entirely different phase of British history at this point. We're now looking at the 1530s, and we're looking at Henry VIII, the Tudor King, and the defining thing about his reign is not the endless parade of wives that he has, but it's the religious upheaval of this period, which is going to continue into the reign of Elizabeth and Mary, and even into James's reign as well. Where does this religious upheaval come from? It's important at this point to make sure that you are familiar with the difference between Protestant and Catholic. You should have some notes on that, but just broadly speaking, it is about the role of the clergy as arbiters of the relationship between man and God. And the new Protestant religion very much has the preacher, the priest, as almost an equal, simply a go-between, no longer a gatekeeper, the person who says, this is what God's will is. Now they're there to facilitate that relationship. In 1536, Henry breaks from Rome and he takes England into the Protestant realm by establishing a Church of England with himself as the head. Now, this is quite important because a lot of people will tell you that the main reason that Henry breaks from Rome is simply to ensure that he is able to marry Anne Boleyn because he believes that she can give him a child, whereas his current wife can't, and the Pope will not allow him to annul the marriage or divorce his current wife, because actually they're related. But it goes a little deeper than that. Part of this argument with the Pope is this same thing we saw over and over and over again throughout the medieval period, even back to the Normans, to the investiture controversy that William II was dealing with. It's this idea of who rules, and to a man like Henry VIII, the idea of being able to seize all of the power in your country, the idea of ensuring that everybody owes loyalty only to you, well, that's very attractive, very attractive indeed. And that certainly plays into his decision to take England away from Rome. As part of the break with Rome, Henry passes something called the Act of Suppression. And this is the Act of Parliament, the law which disestablishes all of the monasteries. And it allows him to claim all of their lands and money and never ever underestimate the need that Henry had for money. Money went through his fingers like water. His father, Henry VII, was an incredibly astute financial operator. 
He left an enormous amount of money for his son when he took the throne. But Henry VIII has managed to blow most of it on wine, women, song, jousting tournaments, and yes, food. So he needs an awful lot of money. And he can get it because it's simply sitting there in these monasteries. So how can he get hold of it? Because the land still belongs to the Pope, even though the church in England is now a Protestant church, this land belongs to the Catholic Church. It's very, very simple. It has to be done legally. And to do that, you need a lawyer. Enter Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell is Henry's main advisor, very similar to the old uh, medieval role of steward. He's a working-class boy who's worked his way up, managed to get himself a good education, as trained as a lawyer. He was a close advisor to the Cardinal, who was Henry's closest advisor before, and from Henry's point of view, he has been instrumental in arranging the marriage to Anne Boleyn, giving Henry what he wanted. So Cromwell is handed this problem of how do we get the money that's locked up in the monasteries? And he does this by setting up the Valor Ecclesiasticus, commissioners, men who would go around and visit all of the monasteries to see if they were abiding by the rules that Henry has put in place to organise how they can work now that they are no longer part of the established Church of England. The rules are very simple. There should be no worshipping of idols, they must be working in certain ways with the sick, their prayers must follow certain formats, etc, etc, etc. If they were not following these rules, they would be closed down and their lands would be seized. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out what finding Cromwell wants from his commissioners. Quite a few of these reports come back suggesting that the monasteries are doing exactly what Henry wants and generally what you'll find is that in those cases Cromwell simply says no. Go back and do it again until he gets the result that he wants. So we now find ourselves in a situation where the monasteries are being shut down. Some of the larger ones first because that's where the money is. This is one of the elements that makes people unhappy. Do not make the mistake of believing that the pilgrimage of grace, although it looks religious, is entirely a religious problem. Remember, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it might actually be a goose. Why are people unhappy in 1536? Well, there are a number of reasons. First off, there's rising prices. There's rising prices across the board because Henry is debasing the coinage. This goes on throughout his entire reign and it has knock-on effects for poor old Elizabeth when she takes over. But he's debasing the coinage and he's spending money so much that there is inflation. Prices go up. As always, rising prices hit the poorest people the hardest. And so the poor find themselves unable to afford simple staple items. Next, there is the religious part of this. A lot of people are not happy that the church they have known their entire lives has suddenly been taken away from them. And they are now being told that they must follow an entirely different religion. This doesn't sit well with them. People, on the whole, do not like change. And that's going to come back a bit later on when we discuss the actual nature 
of the pilgrimage of grace. The other thing to factor into this is that the monasteries perform a very important social service. The monasteries are places where the sick can be looked after. The monasteries are places where the poor can be educated. They offer a route out of the common life, out of poverty. Those services are now gone because the monasteries are being taken away and there is nothing to replace them. This is early modern England. There is no social safety net. There is no welfare. There is no dole payment. If you are broke, you starve. And before, if you are starving, you could go to the local monastery for charity. That monastery has now been shut up, abandoned, and its lands taken away. The next two reasons that people are unhappy are political. The first and most simple is that Thomas Cromwell is hated. He's hated by everybody who's got a stake in what's going on in the country. He's hated by the Catholics because he's been pushing Protestantism. He's hated by the supporters of the old Queen because he's been responsible for arranging the new marriage to the new Queen. And he's hated by the upper classes because he's a jumped-up working-class oik. And also, let's not beat around the bush here, he's not a particularly nice man. He is ruthless. And so he makes an awful lot of enemies in the King's Court and outside of the King's Court. So people are unhappy with Cromwell. Finally, on the political front, there's this. Almost all of the major land-holding families are Catholic. They always have been. The Percys, the Nevilles, all of these huge families. They're Catholic and have been for generations. The king has now pulled the rug out from under their feet and some of these new, younger, smaller families, the more radical ones that were Protestant, now find themselves being preferred, being treated better as the king, becoming his favourites. This leaves the Catholic families out in the cold. So they detest the new changes because these are a threat to their existing power base. So just to sum up that, there are four main reasons that feed into the unrest in the 1530s. Economic, religious, political, and in the case of Thomas Cromwell, personal. Remember that the different social classes have different reasons to be upset but they are all upset. And this immediately sets us up here with the difference between this and the Peasants' Revolt. Whereas the Peasants' Revolt was a very simple class-based struggle, this one is going to see members of the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class all rising up against the king together. So what actually happens? Well, in October 1536, only one month after the Act of Suppression, Unrest starts to break out in the North. The North is staunchly Catholic, staunchly conservative. They do not like change. They do not want change. And also, they feel themselves separated from the decisions being made in the South. As always, the North-South divide in the country is there. But in this case, the stronger, more Protestant families tend to be clustered in the South, whereas the big landholding families in the North are proudly Catholic. It actually starts, though, with some commoners. It starts with the parishioners of one small church in Lincolnshire in the village of Louth. It's St. James's Church. 
they are concerned that their church is going to be shut down and their icons are going to be taken away. And so they rise up very quickly. On the second, they capture one of the commissioners and they force this commissioner to write a list of complaints to be sent to the king. On the 4th of October, one of the Bishop of Lincoln's men is killed. And it's around this point that we suddenly start to see gentry, these landed Catholics, joining the revolt at the same time as you start to get monks from the local monastery joining the revolt. So you are seeing here in Lincolnshire these different classes and different groups coalescing together and starting to form themselves into a coherent group. These lists of demands which are drawn up are called the Lincoln Articles and they're sent to the king. Their concerns are very, very simple. First off, they don't like the idea of tithes going to the king. Tithes, 10% of your income, have always gone to the church. Well, now that the king is head of the church, these tithes are now going to him. So they have ceased to become religious and they've simply become another form of taxation. They want the dissolution of the monasteries ceased because of the consequent loss of support for the poor people in all the parishes. They are unhappy about the introduction of Cromwell and other people of low birth into the King's Council. They are upset about the introduction of a new law called the Statute of Uses, which taxes land which is not being used. This is especially dangerous for people in the North, where there are large stretches of open land because there simply aren't enough people to farm them. And finally, as always, the big one, the T word, taxes. They are unhappy with the high level of taxes that are being called by the king. Now when you put all of those things together, that gives you a fairly clear idea on why people are upset. They are upset because of economics, as always. They're upset because of politics, and they're upset because of religion. Compare that to the Peasants' Revolt. You'll see that although the basic concepts behind them and the causes of the unrest are similar, you should spot the major difference. And it highlights a very important idea that's going to run through the rest of this theme study. It is the difference between conservatism and radicalism. Conservatives, small c, not to be confused with the political party, do not like change. They want things to stay the same. That is what a conservative wants. A radical, on the other hand, wants things to change. They want to shake things up. They think the current system is broken and it needs to be fixed. That is what a radical wants. One of these two things, the Peasants' Revolt and the Pilgrimage of Grace, is conservative and the other one is radical. If you can figure out which one of those is which, then you've got the concept clear in your head. Does the Peasants' Revolt want change, or does it want things staying the same? And is the Pilgrimage of Grace a demonstration against unwelcome change, and they want things to stay the same, or are they agitating for things to change? Which one's radical? Which one is conservative? The Lincolnshire Uprising gathers pace pretty quickly. Pretty soon there's about 10,000 men involved.
gathered in the city of Lincoln waiting for the king's reply. Word reaches them that the king has sent an army. Henry VIII is a redhead with all of the temper issues that implies and he is absolutely furious about this challenge to his authority. Remember, one of the reasons he wants to break with Rome is to ensure the loyalty of his subjects is not split and this to him is a perfect example of why that's necessary. These people are defying his rule on religious grounds. Under Henry's new laws passed as part of these religious changes, it's worth remembering that any criticism of the religious changes is treated as criticism of the king himself, which therefore means their treason. Realising that this army is on the way, realising that they are going to be punished for treason, these 10,000 rebels simply melt away. They disappear. The army arrives, a number of people are rounded up, and the king hands down a hundred death sentences. Now, only 57 of these are carried out, but this does include major landowners and monks from the abbey. This is a clear statement from Henry VII that he is not messing about. If you cross the king, you will be punished. So that's the end of the Lincolnshire Uprising. That's the end of the story, isn't it? No because one young lawyer from York, Robert Ask, had been travelling through Lincolnshire during this uprising on his way to London. He fell in with the rebels, he was questioned by them, he listened to what they had to say, and he swore the same oath as the rest of the rebels. After the Lincoln Rebellion collapsed, he goes back to Yorkshire, but he does not regard himself as having been freed from that oath, because as far as he's concerned, actually, yes, these problems are still there. And so he starts to spread the word around Yorkshire, and others flock to listen to what he's saying. And the unrest then spreads. Instead of being in Lincolnshire, it's now in Yorkshire again, a strong, staunchly Catholic, conservative part of the country. The grievances drawn up by the rebels in Yorkshire are remarkably similar to the Lincoln ones. They want a restoration of the old ways in religion. They want the removal of Cromwell and other advisers. They are deeply concerned by rumours of Anne Boleyn's witchcraft, the idea that she put the king under a spell. There are also rumours of taxes that are going to be levied on births, marriages and deaths. As an aside, that's very easy to believe if you think about the way Henry's been acting. He's proven himself to be very hungry for money, and he's proven himself to be quite unscrupulous in how he goes about getting it. So it's entirely within the realms of possibility that people might think, yes, now he's started taking the tithe for himself, he certainly could start levying taxes on the other services the church has always provided, births, marriages and deaths. People are also unhappy about the imposition of a new prayer book, the one of 1535, which included some parts of the Bible in English rather than in Latin. This is a major no-no for a true Catholic. Finally, the poor harvests of 1535 and 1536 have exacerbated the rising prices, and so people are worried about not being able to afford bread and food. Now you can see there that there is a mixture 
of the different groups of people who've come together here, there are some of those which are very much the concerns of working people, and there are some of those which are very much the concern of the landed folk, the people who find their influence drifting away from them. So what does this actually turn into? It turns into a pilgrim's march. It turns into a religious movement of people. Under a banner, depicting the five wounds of Christ, around 30,000 people march on the city of York. And York has always been the key to the North. If you take York, you hold the North. And they march there in these processions led by priests and monks carrying banners and slogans. Each of these 30,000 pilgrims has sworn an oath which was written by Ask. And the oath is very simple to defend the church and the faith, and not to replace the king, but to remove those who are leading him astray. York, Hull, Beverley very quickly fall to the rebels. By the end of October, they control pretty much all of the north of England, including large chunks of Cheshire and Lincolnshire. Major landowners like Darcy and Hussey join the rebellion as well. At this point, Henry has to take action. And we'll look at exactly what action he takes in the second episode. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.